We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview. We'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes can be found at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for buying the audiobook. Thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Alison Mahmoud, founder of FAIR, a brokerage focused on ethical trading and financial education. Alison's early experience with entrepreneurship included borrowing money to buy clothes in Paris and then selling them back home in Prague and then also selling fidget spinners. He says he's always had something to do on the side. One area of expertise he quickly developed was understanding of trading and finance. He found he enjoyed sharing his knowledge with others and has made it his mission to provide free financial education to as many people as possible. Allison is also pursuing a degree in physics while building his company. Allison's current venture, FAIR, was founded during the pandemic when he and his co-founder were brainstorming ideas for something to do. The original idea was to develop a hedge fund built on the principles collectively called ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governments. They also developed a platform to teach financial literacy. In this episode, Allison shares some insights into how entrepreneurs should think about risk by looking at where they are in their journey. Now, let's get better together. Allison Mahmoud, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You are doing some really cool things over at FAIR, which I'm going to let you explain because I don't know a ton about finance and what we were talking about before, this whole concept of ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance for how to run an ethical company. So that's why I wanted to have you on and talk about these really important things when it comes to ethics and finance and building companies, because part of obviously the entrepreneur ethos is how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world through educating and inspiring the next generation of entrepreneur. And if we don't talk about ethics and things that you're trying to do in the finance sector, then no one will know about it. So that's why we're going to talk about it and among Great. other things and stuff like that. But before we get going on that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. So there's kind of two places uh, you can start the story. Uh, and I think, you know, starting a little bit later is uh, kind of the more interesting one. Uh, so when I was about 13, uh, I ended up visiting Paris with my parents. And what I ended up doing is I ended up just, you know, finding some wholesaler there of fashion. And I was like, can I borrow a thousand bucks from my parents? And I ended up buying a bunch of fashion and then selling it off uh, to boutique stores in Prague. 
And that was kind of my first little business venture, uh, you know, made me a bit of money. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And everything kind of spiraled from there. Uh, you know, since then, I've always had something going on, on the side uh, from, you know, like, oh, if you remember the fidget spinner craze, I got in really early on that, which is great. Imported fidget, by yeah. China. Fidget, <laughs> fidget spinners. Uh, you know, I've that, yeah. worked on a derivative. We ended up pitching to a bank. I do some, you know, I, I taught finance along the side because as I was kind of getting into business, I also got an interest in finance, uh, with which came, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, the moment you know a bit about trading and how to do stuff, there's always everyone asking you, hey, can you teach me a little about this? Hey, can you teach me a little bit about that? And I was totally up for it, uh, which is kind of what led me uh, down the path of, uh, you know, teaching finance. And then uh, specifically FAIR, uh, the way that came around is when the pandemic was starting, uh, so back around back in May. Uh, me and someone uh, basically talking, okay, you know, let's do something uh, over the pandemic because this is clearly not going to end within the next few months. So let's spend it doing something productive. And uh, what we ended up coming up with was, okay, let's start a hedge fund. Now, I know that sounds very different from what we're doing at FAIR today. Uh, so hang on with me for a second. Uh, but as we were kind of working on the hedge fund, we wanted to do it a little bit differently. We didn't want to just, you know, take a bunch of pension money and be like, okay, that's, you know, that's what we're going to use to trade. We wanted to uh, kind of build a little bit of a brand around uh, the hedge fund. So as we were doing that, we were kind of, you know, started doing some, you know, finance educational stuff, building out some tools for the, you know, for normal people to use just to really kind of help build out our reputation. And as that was going, we started spending more and more time on that finance education, finance tooling stuff, and then the hedge fund. Uh, so then in January of this year, uh, we had a conversation with someone who basically said, you know, why are you doing this? Either do the hedge fund properly or just do finance education properly. It doesn't make sense to do both because they don't really mesh well together. So we decided to do the finance education. Uh, so, you know, that, that's what kind of launched off fair. We kind of looked at it, you know, uh, and we, because the hedge fund was very, always kind of very ESG ethical oriented, we figured, you know, that would go very well hand in hand. And because we thought, you know, uh, uh, personally, I have a very strong conviction around that finance education should be free uh, because this is something everyone should have access to. You know, if you have $20 in your bank account, maybe, you know, trying to save a little bit of it using that money, I don't know, to maybe learn more or something like that to leverage it to your future is great. If you then suddenly have $20,000, maybe investing some of it is great for you. So having understanding of you know, how to manage your money properly, how to grow that really brings people tons of opportunities. I strongly believe that that education should be free. So we decided that we're going to kind of put it together uh, as kind of let's do the brokerage uh, focused on ESG and have that education for free, which having the brokerage would allow us to do. Uh, so from then on, uh, you know, FAIR kind of spiraled out. Uh, we have now a team of about 34 people and uh, about to start raising our first round of funding. Uh, just as a side note, the person I originally kind of got into the side of the hedge fund with has since left, uh, so now the co-founder of Fair. Uh, but you know, it's it's been going really well. Uh, I've got a pretty solid team. We're almost out uh, with our MVP. We'll actually be coming out in about a week or two. So if you're keeping out on Fair, uh, be sure to check out the App Store. Uh, I'm sure you'll love the education we're doing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how uh, I got to where I am today. Wow, such the uh, zig and zag from hedge fund to financial education, which doesn't see, I mean, now that I think about it, it doesn't seem like that big a jump because, um, well, I know a lot of like VCs and mm -hmm. what's really fascinating is they are always, for whatever reason, really passionate about educating young kids about finance because apparently, well, they don't teach that in school, which I think is a travesty because- Absolutely. finance, right. As you know, like it's so central to the world, like know about certain things. So what do you think is the most important thing to teach? Like say, teach kids about finance, because I think you got to start them young so that they can appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, I agree. I mean, financial education should be a core, I don't know, something that's yeah, free and like a core requirement for, I mean, I have some other ideas about like, if you want to be a citizen of the world, there's some certain things you need to learn and finance is one of them just to understand what's going mm -hmm. on. So what do you think is the most important thing people should learn about finance? I think the most important thing, whether someone's a child or, you know, like some senior 
at some business uh, that they should learn about is understand risk management. Because you can have risk management about investing and understanding how the different timelines uh, can affect it. Because one of the things, actually, I was just speaking to someone earlier today about this, is, you know, you have risk management everywhere. Let's say in your career, you know, let's say you're 21, you're just kind of getting out of uni and looking for a job. And then you're considering, okay, maybe what if I just did a startup on the side? Or what if I did that and this instead? And a lot of people oftentimes look at the risk as if it's equivalent, right? As if if I'm taking this risk now that I'm 21, it's the same as if I was 40. And that's kind of a big misconception because the longer of an outlook you have, the more risk you can afford to take. And this can apply everywhere, right? This can be loans. This can be career risk. This can be any kind of risk you can ever take on in life. The longer of an outlook you have, the more risk you can afford to carry. And it really kind of changes how you approach a lot of things. Because for me, you know, doing FAIR, to some, you know, a lot of people tell me that's a lot of risk because I'm actually also doing an undergrad in physics at the same time. So that, you know, clearly is going to have some effect on how I do at uni. I might even actually, if we do uh, get our funding, uh, which it looks like we will, so that's look, looking great, uh, I will probably take at least a year or two out of university. And a lot of people tell me that's too much risk. Don't do that. Especially like my, my parents, like, no, don't do that. Stay at uni, finish that off. Right. right so right. having understanding that risk management, what risk is, how to value it when, when it's, when you can take a lot of risk, when you can take not enough risk is very important. Uh, and especially I think it ties in a lot with, you know, some people are naturally very open to taking a lot of risk. Some people are naturally risk averse. So having an understanding of how to work with risk and risk management will allow people to really toe that middle line that allows them to optimize for the best outcome for them and for everyone's future. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Because, I mean, I think for me, like if I was to answer that question, I would say compounding, the, the, the magic mm. of compounding that like, if you understood the magic of compounding, then that would kind of basically changes your life. But I actually like your risk assessment one better. And I think the reason is, is because that applies to everything in life. So there's financial risk, there's career risk, there's life risk, obviously. Um, and I think the thing that's really interesting is people don't necessarily understand how to evaluate the risks in the world. Like, like you said, you're young, you could do a startup or two or three, you know, you're getting this degree in physics, which, which is pretty cool just in general, like, Oh, finance <laughs> physics, you know, that's pretty, pretty uh, diverse set of like interests yet, you know, physics, people that have physics degrees tend to go into other, all sorts of interesting things, including what I used to do, which was semiconductor physics and, oh, nice. you know, semiconductors and stuff, because physics is just like, it's the fundamentals of the universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you can't, I used to always say, you can't break the laws of physics, but you can certainly bend them a little bit. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's like pretty neat. So interesting. So risk, 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 risk. Hmm. So how do you, then how do you, how would you, how would you evaluate risk? Let's say, are there any, I don't know, rules of thumb? Are there any like general, I mean, you mentioned one about timeline and time frame, And mm -hmm. I see this, you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're in a pandemic right now. And I, it's interesting. I see people not properly evaluating the risk of like COVID for their personal family, as an example. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give us some other things other than like time, which is a good one. I mean, it's a good, are there any other ones, like some general rules of thumb, some general like first principles about risk management? I think, uh, so one, one of the things a lot, you know, you talked about compounding uh, and that applies to risk as well, right? Uh, so the same way, you know, uh, money can compound if you have compounding interest rate or you invest it, risk will also compound. So, you know, you, you sometimes have people kind of think, you know, let's say roulette wheel, right? There is a, clearly the house has an advantage because you have that zero, which skews the odds in their favor. And a lot, you know, oftentimes when people think about risk, they think about the each, you know, each outcome as individual. Uh, and when you, because, you know, let's say you just decide to have a startup and you assign that some amount of risk. Great, that's, a, that's individual risk. But when you, but then, 
all kind of you, you can stack all the other decisions with it. Uh, and that increases the risk and can kind of adjust considerations because you can have a startup and run it as the most risky enterprise ever, where you take out tons of personal loans and credit card debt and you know you you take risk with you know just spending all your time on the business instead of with your family and things like that. And that kind of really compounds the amount of risk. So if that startup then fails, your basic the, the harm it does to you is uh, proportionally far bigger than even if you did kind of those bits individually at different points in time. So it is uh, so it is something that's actually often overlooked is that you know just like interest rates and all these things compound risk compounds too. Yeah, actually, that's true. It's really true that there, it's so funny because like, again, the COVID example, there, there are some people that will like, I, I'm in San Francisco, right? Mm. I will literally be walking down the street outside. Okay. People are still wearing their masks. I've, I see people driving in their cars alone, wearing a mm. mask. Right. And I'm thinking, what are you, what are you, what are you afraid of? Like, and I think it's just general conditioning. Cause I think the other thing about risk um, and, and financial stuff in general is like, we, depending on our family of origin, we get conditioned to certain things. So as an example, when I, when I grew up, my dad was like, well, you should get a really stable job at like a big company. And he, he worked at United airlines. Right. And he's like, well, United's a great company. You know, you should just get a job at United airlines. And then, you know, to September 11th, 2001 happened and they laid him off early, you know, after 34 years. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's just as risky. I mean, I had another friend that worked at HP, worked at HP for 30 years. It's all he kind of knew. They laid him off. He can't do anything else other than what he did at HP. So, you know, I think risk is an interesting, it's relative, but I think it also gets characterized differently depending on how we grew up. So how do you actually teach, you know, kids or just general, uh, these lessons of financial risk, which then of course apply to to life risk, but what's the best way to teach these concepts? So to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, yeah, I've, I've tried a lot of different ways with okay. uh, different people to kind of try to get their start risk. Uh, and, you know, it worked with some, it, worked, it didn't work with others. So it, it is very, you know, dependent on the person. Uh, but I think probably because of my finance background, I do have a bit of a bias uh, for starting with understanding risk from the financial side, because that's something you can quantify very easily. If you tell someone, you know, you have a 90% chance of gaining 10% extra money and a 10% chance of losing 5% of the money. That is something that's very tangible, right? You can very clearly see, okay, these are the numbers and you can get understanding of the comparison. And, you know, you have a lot of people you talk to who do, you know, like these big lists of all the pros and cons of every decision. And, you know, at, at a certain point, you can start also assigning value to them. So I think it's it's a lot about how you, you know, getting people to think about, you know, risk and what's going on around them in a certain way. Because, uh, you know, let's say, if, let's say I decide to go skydiving, right? If I look at statistics of the risk of skydiving, that will mean nothing to me. Like, oh, one in 10 million people die doing skydiving. I don't know if that's a correct statistic. I just completely made that up. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean much to someone. But the, the numerical side, the dollar value and the, on the money side, that very quickly gets to a point where, okay, I understand what this risk means. And then from there, you kind of get used to thinking about risk in a certain way. And that can kind of transfer uh, into, the other, into other parts. Uh, so I think that's probably the best way I found to help people kind of think about risk. But honestly, you know, like really being rational with risk is one of the big mysteries of economics. Like that's the whole of behavioral economics is literally about understanding how people actually think about risk and getting them to do it properly. So I'm, I'm not sure I have a really good answer for you there. Well, no, I mean, I bring this up because it was I read this article the other day and it was from the Federal Reserve Board here in, you know, in the States. 
Um, and, and one of the analysts wrote this thing, and it, it basically talked about some macroeconomic trends. I think it was inflation. Mm-hmm. And his, I, I mean, I paraphrase because I didn't read the whole paper. I actually have it queued up to read. I have both the New York Times article and this paper queued up to read because he basically said that macroeconomics is just, it's, it's not really very useful, um, which is something I've always felt just in my gut. Like it's really hard to, to like pull all this economic data together and get this macro view of like the United States when literally it's like community by community. I mean, you just look at COVID. It's here in San Francisco, we're doing pretty well with COVID in terms of managing it. Other parts of the US, it's a disaster, right? And, mm-hmm. and depending on your political affiliation, different degrees of disaster and or freedom or, you know, whatever buzzword bingo, whatever political party is going to do. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I think this is the hard problem. I mean, you know, physics, there's the hard problem, <laughs> but, but in, um, in economics, the hard problem is it's completely irrational. People are irrational. It's more focused on local, like local, local conditions and trying to expand that to a macro condition is almost impossible, if not impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think some of this plays into risk because what's been going on here in the U.S. and I'm sure you're, you're in the U.K., right? Uh, yeah, right now I'm in the, yeah, UK. In the U.K. And so you know we're, we have similar, similar but different kind of you know um, community like cultures, right? I mean, we yeah. obviously. If you were to ask the British government back in the 1700s, oh yeah, those Americans are a bunch of terrorists, you know, because <laughs> that's what we were. I mean, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I mean, it's just so fascinating how this works from a historical point of view. But when it comes to the risk assessment of, like, say, getting vaccinated, right, which is a big deal here, because there's all sorts of conspiracy theories, and you just kind of go down the list, and even the numbers that they put out, which to your point about, okay, you know, risks compound. And of course there's certain different things, but I also think the thing that that's interesting is that it's the types of risk and the upside and downside, right? So mm-hmm. when it, when it came to the risk of getting a vaccine as an example, you know, the risk of you getting an adverse reaction to a vaccine is extremely low. And those numbers are well-documented. In fact, probably one of the best clinical studies on the planet and just data, right? Like lots of data. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if it's you, if you're the one that gets affected, it doesn't matter what the numbers were, right? Because it's you or your kid. The other one that was really powerful is if you're a kid, if you're a parent and you decide, oh, I'm going to do this, the risk is low, but then your kid gets affected, which happens. Like there's a certain percentage of people that are going to have this problem. This, the, the, the reversibility and the magnitude of the risk seems to be amplified. Even though the probability is low, the emotional charge is super high. Um, I'm just curious if this is this what happens in finance too, because when I see people trying to do like understand the world of, you know, like money and stuff, especially like cryptocurrency, which is a great example of mm. this. You know, it's like this whipsaw, completely rat, you know, almost irrational process. But then again, like the upsides and downsides are almost asymmetric or can be asymmetric. So is is there, have you found a good way to talk to people about that? I'm, I'm curious because you see a lot of decision-making in finance be completely irrational given the upsides and downsides people tend to make them equal. And I'm like, there's no, these are not equal. They're asymmetric. You know, uh, I'm just mm-hmm. curious if, if, if you find that too. Yeah. I think there's a, there, there's kind of two, you know, two sides to it. If you look at kind of the institutional side of finance where, you know, the, they, the money they kind of play with, isn't something that's going to directly affect them if they suddenly lose uh, some small chunk of it. They're, it can be much more rational because you don't, you know, if let's say, you know, they have their hundred million dollars and they lose $2 million one day, it's not like, oh, I can't go out and buy dinner today, right? So there, there is kind of a level of disconnect uh, on the institutional side, but on the retail side, and what retail is, is basically, you know, everyday normal people, 
there can be a lot of that. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of people kind of make the mistake of just getting into trading or investing when they can't afford to. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you hear all the time, you know, when some talks about investing in that, invest money you can afford to lose or, you know, at least account for the risk. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, if you're, uh, I, you know, I, I personally really, you know, think trading is great fun. People, I don't see, I have no nothing against it. And I think people should do it. But it should be done with money you're not worried about. Because uh, there, there's a lot of psychology. There's another whole behavioral field. It's called behavioral finance, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. is basically how people act around, you know, uh, when they have that money kind of in the market and being traded. And one of the big things, if you know, if you, if you go to Wall Street and you talk to a lot of traders, what they'll tell you is the emotions are what messes you up. Right? Mm -hmm. you, you have to kind of disconnect a lot of the emotions. And now it's hard, right? You're not going to, uh, you're not going to start being some, you know, robot when you're kind of playing around with, if you're, uh, with a bit of your own money, uh, which is why you have, you know, the kind of general, generally accepted advice is, you know, if it's retirement money, you put it in some index fund or something that's relatively safe. So you're not too worried about it. But even then you see people, you know, the market drops. And people are like, oh, no, and they pull the money out and they're losing a bunch of money because of it, because tomorrow the market recovers. So there, there is, you know, there are investments which you should kind of just put down and not look at. And then you have, you know, when it's money you genuinely are not worried about, then uh, you can kind of have fun with it, trade it, things like that. Like, you know, if I look at Wall Street bets, some of those people, you know, they're, they're, they're gambling away their life savings. And it is gambling because they can't afford to lose that money. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I know some people that are, you know, on that Reddit who can lose that money for them. A hundred thousand dollar check is the bonus they got at the end of the year and they don't care. They either buy a new house with it or it's nothing. It makes no difference to them. If that's the position you're in, go away, trade, trade that money. If that's not the position you're in, risk management is very important and you have to kind of account for that. That's why, you know, keeping positions within reason, you know, you don't want to have one position that destroys the whole account because then, yeah, you know, the probabilities are, uh, you know, the probability of that happening can be quite low, but on the off chance it does happen, it completely ruins you. That's the compounding effective risk, of course, that, you know, you, you can have a, if you all, if you bet it all on black, you can lose everything. If you, if you bet on, if you bet one twenty fourth of your money on black, it will take you far, far longer than you, than you know, to lose everything if if stuff goes wrong. And if you're trading, it's often kind of a probabilistic outcome. Like there's an eighty percent chance I'm right, twenty percent chance I'm wrong. And if you bet everything, twenty percent chance you lose everything. But that's what you know. You have a lot of lot, lot of times like you know, trade small parts, kind of keep keep it split up. And there, if people kind of get used to that, follow that, you're relatively all right. Uh, because it is much easier to make large returns with smaller portfolios. So as a retail investor, it's much easier to make good amounts of money than some big hedge fund, because that big hedge fund has to $300 million. They have to move out of the market, which is slow. It's cumbersome. It's expensive to do. Yeah. No, Meanwhile, they, if you're retail, you know, you're out of the market within three seconds yeah. and you're done. So there's a lot more money to be made if you're trading it yourself. But you have to kind of be you know, diligent. You have to not put yourself too much out there. And, you know, one of the things is when you're, you know, let's say your portfolio doubles and you want to take some of that money out so you feel more comfortable, take that money out. You know, there's, there, there's a level of keep in mind your psychology, keep in mind what's going on in your personal life. If suddenly you lost your job and you have a massive portfolio you're trading, maybe take some of it out so you have a backup. Because, you know, statistically, unlikely. But when it does happen, you want to have a fallback. Yeah. Well, that's like the whole uh, Black Swan book by uh, yeah. a Talib. Um, uh, it was so interesting when I first read that book because, I mean, you know, you're a physics guy. I'm an engineering guy. So math is sort of our in our blood. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like we know the math and we had, you know, had to take probability and random phenomena and statistics for all sorts of communication theory work. But it's funny because this whole idea of spreading risk out and um, having a diverse quote unquote portfolio, 
not putting quote unquote, all of your eggs in one basket, which is the very famous, you know, um, little, uh, old wives tale, which is true because there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, things like you said, with the market, things move up and down. Right. And if you're sitting there constantly watching the market, it's just going to whipsaw you. You're just going to be, it's going to, you're going to get frustrated really quick. I mean, this is the same thing with like cryptocurrency, like cryptocurrency trading. It's one of those things where if you're day trading crypto, you got to be on it. Or if you're more long-term, like, hey, yeah, you're going to put a little bit of your savings in, not a ton because it's super risky, but you should put a little bit of it in just to say like, I'm playing in crypto <laughs> or yeah. same, with, same, with, same with startups, same with like yeah. you mentioned startup investing. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I do when I invest in startups is like that money's gone. Like I just, it's, it's play money that, you know, I have to diversify. I have to have a little bit of riskier thing because the upside is very much asymmetric. Right. So you could, and I think that's the thing about risk that I learned from the black swan is, and, and it was the black swan. And there was another one about asymmetric risk. Um, and also asymmetric upside versus the downside. So, and, and all those factors come into it. I mean, even at a startup, like, you know, you're about to raise money as a startup, you know, the people that you're going to go try to raise money for are going to, they're really going to evaluate your team, your market, and then how risky the execution risk. They always say, well, what's the execution risk? This isn't going to happen. I just find it. I find that finance literacy Mm -hmm. and being able to properly calculate the risk, not to like, you know, like people like us, where if we're going to build like a rocket ship, you know, there's risk, (laughs) you know, failure mode effect analysis and risk mitigation plans. I mean, that's like, because things blow up and people die. I'm not saying go to that level. Um, But yeah, having just a very healthy appreciation for the random and chaotic nature of the world, especially when it comes to finance. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's interesting, so interesting. So, what, what is the end game for fair? I mean, you, you know, you have like you want to do education, then you want to be a brokerage, and then you want to do um, this, you know, ESG, which, which I'd love for you to explain to everyone because it was new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we start with that first? Why don't you explain? kind of the the philosophy behind FAIR and then how that relates to ESG. And Mm -hmm. then we can kind of back into this brokerage thing because, I mean, you know, people would be like, we need another brokerage, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I mean, I'm I'm curious what your take on it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the philosophy behind FAIR, uh, we've actually been, you know, uh, I have a cultural advisor. We've been really kind of trying to figure out a lot about kind of how do you want to structure the company culture and what we really stand for. And I think, uh, you know, on, on the cultural side, transparency and the kind of those parts are very important to us being, you know, having a positive impact, you know, being quite inquisitive, uh, seeing how things work, uh, you know, is really kind of a big part of our company culture. And it, you know, quite lines up with, uh, you know, ESG, uh, because what ESG is, is essentially a way to measure an impact, the impact or how ethical, uh, in a way, uh, the company is. So what ESG stands for uh, is environmental, social, and governance. I feel like environmental and social, most people know uh, what you can imagine behind that governance is basically how the company treats their employees, things around that. And essentially, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different standards around it because it's a very new field, so it's not completely standardized, but it's looking at what kind of an impact does the company have on the world, on the community, and on the people within it. And Companies which are highly ESG rated often have a better impact environmentally, better impact socially, better impact on you know internally on their teams and uh, people who work for them. So it is very much uh, something that you know values transparency because if if companies hide everything about them, it's getting very hard to figure out how they do ESG wise. But it's also about running the company right because you know personally I think you know. Governance, you know, doing governance right requires, you know, if you, if you have, let, let's, let's just go soup, you know, technically, if you have high satisfaction rates and high retention rates on your team, you're probably doing something right. 
And you can often link that in studies to higher productivity and things like that. And that's exactly the kind of stuff governance looks at. Are people happy? Is there a lot of turnover, et cetera, et cetera? And you're kind of building a better business. So to, to me, you know, ESG isn't just kind of the better impact, but it's also just building a business that's built better to last and to have a, you know, to just have a better impact in the future. Yeah, yeah. I think what this, this is sort of akin to corporate social responsibility, right? That C- Absolutely. Uh, CSR. Okay. That, so, okay. So that's why I got a little confused because I hear about corporate social responsibility all the time. And it, it seems like in the finance world, part of corporate social responsibility would be this sort of ESG, yeah, you know, extent. fit to it. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's, this is a, this is also one of those things where a lot of people are doing like B Corps, which is probably similar. Like you said, there's a lot of different standards for which to uh, <laughs> to adhere to, which is good and bad. I mean, good in the sense that a lot of people are thinking about it, but bad in the sense that as a consumer, like who do I have, who do I trust? Like what's the standard for which I'm evaluating this? So at FAIR, what, what, what's, do you, you guys adhere to a standard of how you're going to evaluate these companies? Um, is there one that you're like particularly fond of, or is it a combination of, of them? I'm curious, like mm-hmm. how the standards will be set for this because always what I've found in industries, cause I've, you know, done a lot of like standards work for like semiconductor circuits and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Bluetooth, USB, RFID, Wi-Fi and stuff. Um, standards matter because what you want is a proliferation of people using what you build and you want also a fair kind of marketplace, like standards make it so that it's like, you're, you're not really competing against features. You're competing against how well you implemented the features. So, yeah. So as far as the standards, uh, because ESG is relatively kind of new to the market as far as uh, kind of finally getting to a critical point where there's a decent amount of interest. There's a lot of different standards. Uh, the standards are not standardized, you could say. <laughs> There's no ISO standard on uh, ESG yet. I mean, guys, get on that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, together with the research team, I've been kind of looking into the different standards and what's uh, kind of the options there. And, you know, I can tell you, right now, we don't know which one we're going to go with uh, because there's so many kind of minute differences. There's a lot of companies which do stuff that basically try to greenwash themselves, which is... Yeah, I've, heard, if, yeah. I've heard this. I've heard this greenwashing thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is basically the companies try to appear as if they have much higher ESG ratings than they honestly should. So we're trying to kind of figure out, you know, we're, we're looking into all these different standards because there's just so many of them trying to find the limitations and benefits of each. And we're, we're, currently we're looking at it that we're most likely going to be looking at some kind of a compound where between several of those standards mm. uh, to do to do the evaluation right. And there's constantly new standards coming out. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what's out there once we're launching the brokerage. Uh, but we are, you know, uh, if, if this is something that would particularly interest you, uh, we are going to be putting out kind of reports on the different ESG standards uh, actually, oh. next week, we should be putting oh, cool. out kind of executive summary type reports on uh, three of the ESG standards, uh, just to kind of uh, give give a bit of an insight on what they are and uh, what they really value. Uh, so we're going to be kind of putting that out. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll make sure to, no, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. I think it's important that, you know, we start having these conversations about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have been doing it for a while, like B Corp. You know, corporate social responsibility has been around for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, uh, diversity and inclusion. Like diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion, is, my guess, is part of this corporate social responsibility and obviously the social part of ESG, um, where a lot, of, a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to, I mean, you know, essentially doing what an ethos would do, like a more equitable, inclusive, and resilient world, which is the higher good of anything. I mean, any, any, um, any, anyone that wants to do that is, is actually trying to achieve a higher good. Um, and I think I agree with you that, you know, this, although there are tons of standards out there and, you know, 
you know, maybe even fair will have their own at one point or, the, <laughs> or they will be the amalgamation of all of these other ones, you know, that'll be um, the dream. That'll be the well, dream. <laughs> I mean, and, and you're, you know, you're in a good spot, right? Like this is the thing about these new emerging standards and markets and ideas. When you're ahead of the curve, you become the standard. Yeah. And um, I think like the big thing, uh, you know, that we can kind of look at now around kind of ESG standards and reporting is there's finally starting to be a regulatory push. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, like, you know, all the carbon impact and all that, that's been, that's been going on for a while. Uh, but, you know, a few months ago, we've had some conversations with regulators in the EU uh, and, uh, you know, with some, uh, around some kind of major exchanges and they're kind of quite interested in pushing through regulations or standards that would require more reporting. So companies are required to be more public about kind of what's going on there. So I think, you know, when, when a lot of that information starts coming out, it will really be a big leap forward around actual ESG reporting, because then we're looking at, oh, this is the raw data, not, oh, this is how one company evaluated that, them to be. So it is going to be, uh, you know, a big step forward. And a lot of conversations we've had, they're looking to start doing that, uh, and, you know, would properly require it in about a year and a half to two years. So, you know, by that time, there's going to be a lot of changes uh, in the space. And just generally, you know, the, the, the ESG reporting space is massively changing well, almost every week. You know, I, I look at some update and, you know, just last week, there's a big update about, you know, one of the standards that they're changing stuff. And it's just constantly going on where uh, it's getting better and better. And hopefully we can get there to one day where companies can't really greenwash themselves and actually if they want to comply with ESG standards, they do have to actually follow them. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you're ISO certified or ISO, you know, you're supposed to follow ISO, right? And, you know, for those of you that don't know what ISO is, it's international standards group that does a bunch of things for how to run a company. Um, a lot of it, a lot of them about manufacturing and just general processes. So there's a lot of ISO standards revolving around how to build stuff. So the reason your iPhone works is because of standards, <laughs> because <laughs> if there was no good, you know, general, you know, good manufacturing practices and or standards to connect your Bluetooth to your every other Bluetooth, this would be a mess. So um, they work and they work well. Uh, and it's an important thing to do. I mean, I think as time goes on, you know, there's also this big effort, I mean, especially in the EU for uh, data protection and privacy, which my guess is part of the social part as well. Um, environmental, obviously, like don't pollute the planet, but this, the social thing, I think, and, the, and actually probably a little bit of the governance because of the huge issue with data privacy, especially along with the personal identifiable information or PII, mm -hmm. you start to see a lot of people a lot of companies having these hacking and stuff like that. And yeah, there's been like three major ones just over the past five days. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think all the time. Yeah. And I think people worry about it. I mean, I do. I mean, why wouldn't you worry about getting your information? It could be some fraud or whatever, but I think it's also something that if left unchecked and, or if people didn't demand some, level of standard or competency in protecting information, you know, it's the wild west. And granted, back when the internet first started, <laughs> back in the, in the golden days or the dark ages, right? Um, sometimes, you know, to grow something, you kind of have to let it have a little more freedom. But what, what you see, even with societies and with markets is as they mature, again, the standards matter. Because I think people then start to realize, oh, we got to control this a little bit or it will kind of do what's happening, you know, pollute the planet, uh, concentration of wealth or whatever. I mean, that's the stuff with this whole finance thing getting, you know, coming full circle back to finance. Making the mechanism to acquire wealth and invest wealth like this sort of democratizing that process is only going to help the disparity between, you know, the super rich and the super, super poor yeah. or whatever. Or, and I think you're, I think what you're trying to do with the education of it 
That's what, that's the first step. Educate people on what finance means and how they can manage their financial risk so that they can make informed decisions about the market as well as, hey, I want to put my money in ESG companies or companies with good social corporate social responsibility because I'm going to pay. I'm the ultimate in, you know, economic, right? Okay. Maybe the only macroeconomic thing that has any weight to it, right? Is the, you know, the movement of money because of someone's pain or pain with their thing. So yeah. And if you look at it, right, uh, you have like, what, what is, what do companies really care about, right? The leadership of a company cares about revenue. So how much money they're made, you know, how much turnaround they have, how much profit they have and the share price. Because if a company is publicly listed, their share price is their blood. That's what they live by. And by not buying companies' products, you can slowly affect their revenue. You know, in years and you know, after years and years, if tons of people don't buy, you, they will start to notice it. But share price is immediate. Company does something wrong, you 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 close your position. Tons of people close their position. Suddenly they crash. That's instant. The, the board and the leadership of that company will be having a meeting about that tomorrow, not in three months or three years, yeah. which is why, you know, like ESG considerations and having that be part of trading to really encourage companies to be ethical and to have the right impact is so powerful because it is like, it's like the internet for getting companies to do something right. It's immediate. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what sort of questions would you have the next generation of entrepreneur ask themselves as they start their entrepreneurial journey? I think, you know, for, for a lot of people getting into it, uh, there's often kind of a lot of fear there and it is, uh, you know, and there, there is, you know, we talked about the risk and how you should have kind of a long-term outlook because you can afford to take a lot of risk. So I think what really should matter is building, you know, if you're trying to build it, Build it to last, you know, build it with kind of ESG value. So it is something that sticks around to treat your employees right. So you have a positive impact. So when you're building out the company, you can have any idea you want. You can have any kind of product you're building. But look at if you succeed, what will your impact be outside of just your product? Will you be a company that really, you know, did the right thing and also had a really successful product? Or will you be some kind of a corporate reader type company which overtook its market, but in its path destroyed the environment, destroyed people's values, and abused its employees to a level that you probably, you know, like they'll all leave you and then you'll end up crashing as a business anyway. There's a, you know, there's a lot of kind of thinking around, oh, you know, get the right idea, have the right timing in the market, but that will get you to a certain level. But if you if you do the right thing as a company, you consider ESG value or CSR or any or, or just kind of stick true to your values of having the right impact, doing what you believe is right. That is far more valuable than the quick little boost that uh, you know the alternatives can give you. Yeah, I love I love that line. Build it to last. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate. You educating us a little bit, just a tad about finance. But uh, if you want more education on that, go over to FAIR. I think it's hellofair.io, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. I will definitely put that in the show notes. And good luck on the raise. And uh, yeah, make sure that you send me all of the write-ups on this ESG standards, because I'll definitely put those in the show notes as well. I think people will be very interested. So thanks again and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Allison, for being on the show, talking about risk and finance. I think it is something that a lot of people need to learn about both financial risk, normal risk, and how those all intertwine. So thanks again for that. Now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from the interview. How much of a risk something is depends somewhat on your age. Someone who is in their 20s can afford to take bigger risks, clearly, right? I mean, if you're younger, you should probably take a little more risks, clearly, as long as they don't, like, you don't die or anything. But since you got some time to develop that. So, yeah, I mean, you should ask the question, 
you know, how old am I? And what are the risks appropriate for my age at some point, right? Risk can compound. So be aware of areas where you are taking unnecessary risk. While do, going into business is certainly risky, that risk is compounded even more if you sacrifice your safety outlets and burn yourself out or your support system goes away in the process. So this is the whole thing about like working really super hard and like burning all the boats, as they say, and just kind of going after something. I mean, clearly you need to have a safety net at some point. Not all of us are independently wealthy. Um, but of course, you know, as you're younger, you know, you may not have as much uh, money to use to live, right? Like you, you have probably little money and your burn rate for living is pretty low. So, you know, kind of ask yourself the question of how much is my burn rate? How much can I afford to risk on this? Uh, what are some of my support networks? How long should I be doing this? I mean, you don't, again, you don't want to burn all those bridges. You don't want to burn out all that stuff because, you know, if you're going to be doing a venture, I mean, the people that love you and your friends and family that are around you are part of the venture as well. They're part of the journey. They're probably going to either be your first advisor, your first investor, or your most important cheerleader. So there you have it. Those are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview, as well as some questions you should ask yourself if you're going to be on the entrepreneur journey. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.